Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to the New Books and Military History channel on the New Books Network. The Carrier Task Force, the symbolic and physical manifestation of the United States' ability to project naval and air power across the globe, came of age during the Second World War. Fighting the Imperial Japanese Navy and closely supporting General MacArthur's and Admiral Nimitz's island hopping campaign, the Carrier and its air wing transitioned from being just one more tactical element within the fleet to the formidable strategic weapon we've come to know today. Instrumental in bringing about this change was Admiral John Sidney McCain, grandfather of the late Senator John McCain, and the subject of Emeritus Professor William F. Trimble's most recent biography, Admiral John S. McCain and the Triumph of Naval Air Power, published by Naval Institute Press. Taking a multidimensional approach, Professor Trimble weaves together the narrative of McCain's career with the history of a liminal moment in the Navy's development as an institution, in the ascendancy of naval aviation, and in the Navy's evolution from a battleship-centered force to the modern Air Navy. Professor Trimble's richly detailed biography goes a long way toward filling in the fine-grained details of this story. Moreover, in reassessing McCain's deep understanding of naval aviation's multiple facets and his ability to bring this knowledge to bear as the commander of Task Force 38, Professor Trimble has carved out a space for McCain in the pantheon of the Second World War's great fighting admirals. Indeed, McCain, as much as King, Halsey, Spruance, or Nimitz, was fundamental to the Navy's success in the Pacific. Bill, thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network. Well, thank you very much, Scott. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for those kind comments about the book. I appreciate them uh, a great deal. Oh, no problem. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that. So listeners might be familiar with your earlier work, which focused on the development of naval aviation technology and the careers and influence of naval, naval aviation's early pioneers, notably Glenn Curtis and Admiral William A. Moffat. Uh, but for those who are not familiar with the work, what first sparked your interest in this topic? Uh, well, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, I graduated from, got my PhD from the University of Colorado in 1974. And in 1974, there were very few academic jobs available to anybody. So fortunately, I went back home to Pittsburgh and, and, and luckily I found a job. I mean, it was really sheer luck. A lot of my career is basic, based on luck. Uh, got a job as editor at the Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. And there, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do anything much on American diplomatic history, which was uh, the topic of my dissertation. And I talked with somebody, uh, one of my former one of my former professors at Colorado. He said, "Why don't you do something on aeronautics?" And I went, "Aeronautics? Are you kidding me? I want to do something serious." And uh, the more I dug into it, I, I found that this was really fascinating stuff. Uh, and while I was at the Historical Society, I published uh, a history of aeronautics in Pennsylvania. And one part of that book was uh, information on the Naval Aircraft Factory in Philadelphia, which was the Navy's uh, Navy-owned and Navy-operated, Navy-managed aircraft factory during World War I, formed during World War I, and continued through World War II. So after the Pennsylvania book, I did a, a history of aeronautics, excuse me, after the history of aeronautics in Pennsylvania, I did a history of the Naval Aircraft Factory. Uh, by that time, I'd, I'd come in 1985 to, to an academic position uh, here at Auburn University, where I was mostly teaching the history of technology. So this kind of meshed aviation history, aeronautics history, meshed with 
the history of technology. So my introduction to naval aviation history came with the Naval Aircraft Factory. And, and part, of the, part of the story of the Naval Aircraft Factory involved Admiral Moffat, who was the first chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics. Uh, he had to work out a compromise uh, with private manufacturers of airplanes who were not happy about having the government involved in their business. Uh, worked out a compromise with them where the Naval Aircraft Factory would not do series production of airplanes, uh, but would do simply prototype work and research and development. And that compromise worked really through the beginning of World War II more than anything else. So, so at that point with the Naval Aircraft Factory, I thought I knew a lot about naval aviation. And I thought I knew a lot about Moffat until I got into you know, working, researching, and, and writing the Moffat biography. And then I realized I didn't really know very much about it at all. Uh, but the Moffat biography, probably more than anything else, got me involved with biography, got me involved even more deeply with naval aviation history. Interesting. Um, now, Admiral John McCain, uh, the subject of your current book, is no stranger to students of the Pacific War. Um, <laughs> as you know, in the book, multiple uh, historians have kind of focused on his career, his command yeah, decisions, yeah. his strong association yeah. with the Fast Carrier Task Forces. Um, but in reading the book, it seemed to me at least that McCain's career really builds and expands upon the themes you touch upon in your biographies of Curtis and Moffat. Uh, when you were approaching this book, is did you see a connection there? And how do you see McCain in relation to these earlier figures? Yeah. Uh, one of, one of this, it was not really my idea to do a biography of, uh, of McCain. Uh, a friend of mine, Jim Bradford, you may know of him at Texas A&M, mm -hmm. uh, is editing this history and strategy series for the Naval Institute Press. And after I finished Curtis, a couple of years after I finished Curtis, he approached me and said, hey, you need a new project. And I said, yeah, really, I do. <laughs> and he said, uh, after doing Curtis, why don't you do somebody, Curtis being one of the very earliest people involved in naval aviation, uh, if not the earliest in the United States. He said, now that you've done an early person here, uh, why not go to one of the later people involved with naval aviation, one of these so-called Johnny-come-latelys, uh, those more senior naval officers, captains in particular, who went to naval aviation training and eventually went to various uh, carrier commands. He said, why don't you look at these Johnny-come-latelys like John McCain? And of course, I knew about John McCain. I certainly knew about his grandson. I'd read uh, John McCain III, the Senator John McCain III, uh, his uh, memoir, Faith of My Fathers. So I said, sure, Jim, why don't I go ahead and do this? Well, it was <laughs> it was one of those things where, okay, you say you're going to do this, and then you realize, gee, what have I gotten myself into? Because even though I'd done a lot of naval aviation history, I had not done operational stuff. Hmm. So I really had to try to get up to speed as much as I possibly could on the operational side of this. And I, I'll tell you, I went into that with a good deal of trepidation. Uh, I, I was much more comfortable with what McCain did. Uh, as chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics and assistant chief of, uh, of naval operations for air than I was with the operational side. So I really had, it took me some time to get up to speed on that. Uh, I also saw that there was a biography out there already. Uh, Alton Keith uh, Gilbert mm -hmm. in, 19, in, in 26 did a biography of, of McCain. And I wondered what I could be able to add to that. I read that. It's very good. He was, he had access to personal materials, personal McCain materials that I didn't have access to. So yeah. I relied heavily on on him and his book for uh, uh, some of the personal side of McCain. Um, so I really looked at this as what's going on here with this whole concept of the Johnny-come-lately. 
what did that mean in terms of some of the tensions in the naval aviation community between people like McCain and Halsey, for that matter, who were these Johnny-come-latelys, and other people like especially John Towers, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of the very earliest naval aviators. I also looked at this, and, and I, I had read uh, uh, Clark Reynolds' Fast Carriers book, which is really a superb book. I mean, Reynolds was doing things that nobody else was doing. Uh, and also his uh, John Towers biography. Uh, I especially needed to read that and, and, and do work in that as part of my Curtis biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also saw how Reynolds really leaned much toward Towers, which is not surprising, and was highly critical of McCain. Uh, at various junctures. And I thought, if I dig into this, there's got to be a more balanced approach to this. Uh, Certainly McCain made mistakes. I don't don't try to uh, gloss over any of that. Uh, But I thought there was was room here to have something that was a little bit more balanced than what uh, Clark Reynolds had done. So those were some of the reasons I got into this. I I also wanted to have kind of a broader overview of this. And I don't know how well it worked. Uh, This whole idea that the aircraft carrier... uh, during the interwar years, and especially during World War II, transitioned from uh, a more tactical approach to warfare, and especially sea control uh, in association with battleship fleets, to something that was more strategic and capable of independent operations and power projection. And I really thought that was what was going on here, and that was something that involved McCain to a great deal. And then finally, as you mentioned in your introduction, there are only a handful of people who, who commanded large carrier task forces. Uh, literally a handful. Uh, you know, you have Mitcher, you have Spruance, yeah. you have Halsey, you have McCain, maybe maybe Fletcher, and also Kincaid. And that's about it. So I thought I thought he deserved more extended treatment than he's had. Yeah, I think uh, it. You did a, uh, one of the things that I thought was very successful about the book was the ability to kind of integrate McCain's personal career and use that as a lens to kind of look at how this yeah. really yeah. transitional period came about and also how. Uh, you know, the, the relationship between the things that you said you were more comfortable with, McCain's, you know, kind of <laughs> bureaucratic, administrative yeah. and political savvy yeah. translated actually into success in combat. But um, yeah, yeah. want to go. And I've, and I've, excuse me, I've, I've also liked uh, biography is challenging in a lot of ways, but I, I've I think I've done fairly well with it. I like it because it makes history personal. And what's history? It's about people. It's about persons. And uh, you can also then use it as, as you said, a vehicle or a lens to look at bigger historical issues and bigger historical problems uh, that face all of us, basically. So I've, I've, I think I've done fairly well with, with biographies over the years. I wanted to kind of come back to the idea of McCain as a Johnny come lately. Right. In the book, one of the things that struck me is that you know, he's derided as a Johnny come lately by, you know, the blue, you know, the brown shoes, you know, in the aviation community and, you know, and in the popular press occasionally. Um, But it kind of struck me that his early work, you know, in the Bureau of Navigation and kind of getting involved with the the controversy sparked by Army Air Force General Billy Mitchell kind of put him very intimately connected to naval aviation early in his career, even before he earned his wings. Is that kind of a fair assessment? Yeah, that's that's very well put. Uh, he served three tours in the Bureau of Navigation, uh, starting what in 1918 and continuing through what uh, the middle part of the 1930s. Uh, and Bureau of Navigation was responsible for Navy personnel, 
So it was a it was a powerful bureau. There's no question about that. And it was also highly politically connected. Well, all these bureaus were politically connected. Uh, but his his tours with the Bureau of Navigation really put him in touch with personnel policies and uh, gave him an understanding of some of the problems associated with naval aviation personnel. Uh, how do you fit them? How do you fit them into the broader picture of line officers and their duty at sea? Uh, the aviators uh, wanted to make sure that uh, flight pay was accorded uh, to them. Uh, this was something that a lot of other uh, line officers were not comfortable with and had to deal with that uh, way around that. Also, how much sea duty are you responsible for? How much desk duty are you responsible for? How much flying were you responsible for? Uh, so those were things that he had to grapple with there. And also there was a, an undercurrent, if you will, during the interwar period and even continued into the war period that naval aviation was, was so unique and so important that it deserved a separate core status. In other words, something a, something akin to the Marine Corps. Mm. And people like McCain, people like Moffat and others said, we appreciate, we understand how important this is, but the Navy is the Navy. And naval aviation should be thoroughly integrated and its people should be thoroughly integrated into the service. So you're always kind of fighting that, uh, that battle over personnel and the responsibilities of naval aviators through this. And, and, and here was a basic problem that, that uh, the Navy and, and McCain became involved with this. Uh, you had these pioneers of naval aviation, but they were relatively junior officers. They were not going to become commanders or captains and be able to captain command ships until fairly late. And the Navy needed uh, aviators or people with aviation experience who were more senior officers, commanders and captains, to uh, to command some of these uh, aviation ships, some of the aircraft carriers in particular. So the way around that was to take people like Halsey and take people like McCain. Uh, as well as others, and send them to Pensacola for flight training. And when they came out of that, then they were more senior captains who could be put in command of aircraft carriers. Well, meanwhile, people like Towers are still sitting back there in some of the lower ranks and are not being able to command carriers. So that was something that really rankled some of the uh, pioneer naval aviators and led to some of the antipathy, antipathy they had to the Johnny-come-latelys like Halsey, McCain, Fitch, and other people. Now, when you open the book, kind of kind of related to this, when you open the book, um, you describe McCain as the Airman's Admiral, and I was yeah. I was wondering if you thought that this was based more from kind of this experience that he got dealing with personnel and politics and really kind of advocating for the Airmen in front of Congress and in front of you know the Navy you know the the higher ups in the Navy administration. Or did this kind of emerge when, at the age of 51, he goes to Pensacola and starts his actual flight training? Yeah, actually, he, 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 got, he earned his wings at age 52. Uh, he was just only a few months uh, younger than Halsey was in, at age 52. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, I wasn't thinking him of him so much as that advocate for the, at an administrative level, uh, an advocate for naval aviation and the airmen, as I was about his personal leadership style, uh, that he really felt strongly about those people who were serving under him, mm. and especially the aviators who were serving under him during World War II. And he earned their appreciation as well, and he earned their respect as well. So it was really a two-way street here in terms of how he 
related to those people working under him and how they related to him. And that wasn't always the case with, with other senior officers who tended to be more aloof and not as involved with what uh, uh, the people under the people under them were doing. Yeah, I think uh, especially his relationship with uh, first commander and then Captain Thatch really comes through in the book. That is kind of a oh, with a, Jimmy Thatch, yeah, yes, a, a father son yeah. uh, relationship that maybe you don't get in other uh, you know in other readings I've done, especially about mostly about Halsey. You kind of get the yeah, more of a yeah. gruff leader rather than kind of somebody who who seemed to have uh, you know a, a deep abiding uh, bond with his subordinates. Yeah, Halsey was Halsey was considerably more standoffish and more aloof uh, from those under his command than was McCain. And you know, and you could be criticized both ways. You know, you don't want to be too close to the people under you. You're you're responsible for putting them in harm's way, uh, and to a certain extent, you have to distance yourself from those personal relationships and personal responsibility and see your broader professional responsibility. And I, and I, maybe I should have de- developed this more in in the book, but. McCain really uh, was able to walk that tightrope and be able to, to to manage both sides very well. So pivoting a little bit, I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about um, the, still in his early career, talking about the Army War, uh, the, the Navy War College, rather, excuse me. Oh, yeah. And yeah. This, uh, this idea that uh, his second thesis was on Japan and a possible war with Japan. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's at the Naval War College at a time when they're right. still developing War Plan Orange. Do you see kind of that moment as as integral to how he starts thinking about the carrier as a tactical or a strategic weapon? Or did that come much later when he earns his wings and then he's appointed as the commander of the Ranger uh, during yeah. the fleet exercises in the at the yeah. end of the 1930s? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a good point you make. I I don't really know the answer to that. I think to a great extent he was simply punching another ticket with the Naval War College. You, you knew you had to go through there if you were going to get senior uh, senior command, and you certainly had to go there through there if you're going to get flag rank. Uh, I'm not sure how deeply he was thinking about what the airplane, what aviation, uh, what the aircraft carrier meant to the broader strategic picture in the Pacific. Uh, but certainly coming out of those courses there, you, you know, that's what the Naval War College is all about, is to give you a, uh, a bigger picture about naval uh, history, naval strategy. And, and certainly at that time, in the late 20s and early 30s when he was there, uh, the, uh, the, the, the main concern, as you said, was War Plan Orange and how were we going to fight a war against Japan in the Pacific. So that was certainly there uh, and provided a background, I'm sure, for some of his later thinking uh, when he got into naval aviation and saw what the aircraft carrier could do as a, as a, an adjunct to the fleet at first, and then ultimately as a, uh, a strategic entity in itself. Well, reading your portrait of McCain, I kept coming back to Scott Mobley's Progressives in Navy Blue. Uh, Mobley is a formal naval officer and current naval historian, uh, and his this book was recently featured on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Mobley argues that two archetypes came to dominate the Navy's officer corps during the latter half of the 19th century, the warrior engineer who saw strategy as paramount to technology and the engineer warrior who emphasized technological know-how over strategic planning. I get the impression though, that McCain really defied these strat, these categories seems to have been the model of a modern fighting admiral to adapt a phrase from Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, conversant in, in, in conversant in administration, politics, public relations, strategy, and technology. 
Do you see McCain in this light? Or is there some continuity here with Mobley's 19th and early 20th century types? Well, I, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm a little uh, concerned about how I would categorize him as a progressive or uh, a scholar, a warrior, or an engineer warrior. Um, he really, he really went through a fairly traditional career up to the point that he got in, involved with naval aviation and didn't particularly involve aspects of, uh, the technical side of avi- uh, of either aviation or the Navy, uh, or engineering, uh, like some other, like some other officers did. Uh, what drew me to McCain also, in addition to some of the other things that I was interested in was how varied his career was. Uh, both at sea and ashore, and I'm not I'm not so sure that uh, even though the Navy valued a varied career, that anybody had quite as varied a career as as, as McCain did. Uh, through the Bureau of Navigation, an executive officer of a of a battleship, which was really one of the most important assignments you can have, short of commanding a battleship, uh, to shore commands at uh, the Bureau of, of Navigation, uh, and then ultimately to a carrier command of his own, and then Bureau of Bureau of Aeronautics and, and Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Air. So he had a, a very career. He, he also was someone. Maybe this. Maybe this is. I'm trying to answer the question my, myself. Uh, maybe was also involved with this was that he did see innovation. He he was, even though he wasn't really an inno, an, an innovator as far as engineering or the technical side of, of of the Navy was concerned. He did appreciate innovation and was amenable to it at various points in his career. Uh, so in that sense, you probably could lump him in among those progressives uh, that Mobley speaks of. Uh, uh, another biography I did was of Jerome Hunsacker. Mm. And, and here you have a naval officer graduated first in his class from the academy in 1908, and he was an engineer, went on to MIT, got a PhD. Uh, here was really a progressive uh, in, in many sense. And I did try to stress that as much in my biography of Unsacker. But I, I, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to try to categorize McCain the same way. Let's talk a little bit about the Ranger. Um, the Ranger, of course, is the first purpose-built carrier that the Navy commissions. Yeah. And McCain is awarded command of the Ranger for the fleet problems that took place in the late 1930s. Right, right. What do you think McCain took away from his experience uh, commanding the Ranger during these exercises, and did this have any influence on how he would eventually conduct operations when he took command of Task Force Thirty Eight? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, he commanded the the Ranger from thirty seven to thirty nine, uh, and was involved with some of the fleet problems. These are the exercises that the Navy carried out periodically uh, throughout the interwar period. Uh, some of them very realistic and and pointing to the future of what was involved with naval aviation in particular. And uh, he he was a little disappointed uh, initially when he got command of the Ranger. He was he was hoping he might get the big carriers Lexington or Saratoga. But uh, when he got the Ranger, he said, "You know what? This is uh, a ship that was built from the keel up, as you said, as an aircraft carrier, and and has some real capabilities here and also limitations." Uh, and uh, he really was very successful with the Ranger in these fleet problems in both the Pacific and the Caribbean uh, in '38 and '39. Uh, the Pacific operations involved uh, defending the West Coast against an attacking carrier fleet, and he was very successful in maneuvering and operating the, the Ranger in defense of the West Coast, went out to Hawaii, 
uh, and exercises out there as well. And then to the Caribbean uh, in, in 1939, one of, one of the interesting things about the Caribbean exercises were that you, here you had multiple, multiple, multi-carrier operations taking place where you had more than one carrier and sometimes operating independently, uh, in these exercises in the, uh, in the Caribbean in 1939. So, uh, this was something that he stored away in his brain and, uh, was able to draw on when he, uh, eventually became a carrier task force commander, uh, in his own right. Another, another important thing, and this relates to some of his ideas about innovation, uh, was that the Ranger was involved in firing exercises, training exercises, anti-aircraft training exercises uh, with target drone aircraft uh, for the first time. And uh, this then you know, led him to understand uh, how important realistic uh, anti-aircraft training was and also gave him a leg up as far as understanding what uh, these drones were capable of, these radio-controlled aircraft were capable of uh, at that time and then later on. Yeah, it also seemed to me that there's uh, a correlation between kind of the erratic behavior exhibited by these radio-controlled drones right. and the lessons that McCain took away from use of anti-aircraft fire and also swarming techniques uh, that he would later develop to try to mitigate the kamikaze threat in 1944-1945. Yeah, what also paid off with some of these exercises uh, in more in the Pacific than in the Caribbean, where the Ranger was able to defend itself really very well against attacking aircraft, much more successful than some of the other aircraft carriers there. Uh, one, one other aspect of this too, and this, this was impressed on everybody who was involved with aircraft carriers during the 19, uh, during the interwar period, especially during the 1930s. You had to find the other aircraft carrier first. You had to find the enemy first and attack right away. If you didn't do that, you were really opening yourself up and to uh, uh, the vulnerability of your own force to attack by the enemy. And boy, that was impressed on everybody who was involved with these exercises. Yeah, I think uh, uh, especially Fletcher's criticism later at Guadalcanal, you know, is perhaps unwarranted in light of these kind of, uh, you know, exercises that demonstrate just how vulnerable the carriers could be as stationary targets. And, yeah, the, the absolute worst thing that can happen is, uh, remember, aircraft carriers are not going to operate at night. Uh, they're only going to operate in daylight. And the worst thing that can happen is that sometime at night, you're going to blunder into an enemy battle fleet, mm. yeah. in which case, <laughs> you know, that's it. You know, you're not going to win that. You're not going to win that battle. Yeah, exactly. So following McCain's time with the Ranger, he takes over as commander of the Pacific Scouting Force, which used the famous PBY Catalina flying boats for long range reconnaissance. Did this add anything to McCain's Naval Aviation Toolkit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, initially, his first aviation assignment was not to the Ranger, but was to the, uh, the fleet air base at Coco Solo in the Canal Zone, uh, where he was responsible for patrol aviation there. When I talk about patrol aviation, what I mean is mostly long-range flying boats uh, that had the capability, long-range was important, that also had the capability of uh, scouting, reconnaissance, and the capability to carry out limited strike operations. Uh, so that was his introduction to patrol aviation. So after he, after after his tour with the Ranger, he went to North Island as commander of the patrol wings in the Pacific, and uh, there he really earned his wings, so to speak, as far as administration was concerned, understanding the the limitations and advantages of what some of these uh, long range patrol aircraft were capable of. Not only did he have responsible, not only was he responsible for patrol aviation on the West Coast, but also Hawaii. 
uh, and one of the uh, one of the very early naval aviators uh, 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 was uh, was responsible for some of the patrol aviation coming out of Hawaii, and he had to work very carefully with with him during the period leading up to Pearl Harbor. Right, jumping ahead to Guadalcanal, McCain is now in a different command, but still in charge of the long range patrolling and reconnaissance flights in the lead up to the operation. Uh, you note that a great deal of criticism has been leveled at McCain's tactical and command abilities, uh, especially in the aftermath of the Battle of Savo Island. Do you feel that this criticism is warranted? And what lessons did McCain take away from this failure if he indeed viewed it as a failure? Some of it is certainly warranted. Some of the criticism is not. Uh, the experience that he had on the West Coast led him to get the assignment as Commander Aircraft South Pacific or Com Air SOPAC uh, in the spring of 1942. And there he was responsible for all of the land-based and tender-based air operations in the South Pacific, a big command with limited resources. Uh, he was serving under, initially he had to serve under Nimitz in Pearl Harbor, but then later under Robert Gormley, uh, who became uh, commander in the South Pacific. Uh, he, was, he was based in Noumea and New Caledonia. Uh, and he had, and he had a, a varied force that he had to deal with. Uh, not only did he have naval aircraft, land-based and tender-based aircraft, uh, but he also was responsible for New Zealand uh, uh, Air Force uh, aircraft. And under his command were also Army Air Forces, B-17s, long-range strategic bombers, if you will. Uh, so he, he was actually exercising jointness before jointness became current, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s. And one of the one of the real achievements that he had was bringing those varied forces together uh, in the spring and in the summer of 1942, leading up to the Guadalcanal campaign. Uh, there, there, there was his administrative capability. There was the experience that he had before uh, to be able to carry that out. So really, in many ways, uh, based on limited resources, he brought all of those uh, varied resources together uh, in anticipation of the Guadalcanal campaign. Uh, which was sometimes referred to as Operation Shoestring, as you know, because it just didn't have many resources to, to carry this out. Now, where he ran into problems was, uh, right off the bat, if you will, was the Battle of Savo Island, uh, which was a tremendous defeat for the United States and its allies, uh, uh, four uh, American and, and one, uh, well, four American and Australian cruisers were, were sunk during the, during that battle. And he was blamed by the uh, amphibious force commander Richmond Kelly Turner for uh, the inadequacies of his research of his search uh, patterns and his search methodology uh, that allowed the Japanese to to get in and and and, and win that battle. In his defense, uh, he was more or less looking for a Japanese carrier force that was inter going to intervene against the landings and not against a surface force like cruisers coming in at night. And, and, and not coming in uh, in the very early morning. So all of, his, all of his search patterns and all the searches that he, were, that he set up were based on how can we locate and how can we counter a Japanese carrier force, not a surface force. So that was part of it. Another problem was, uh, remember, we don't, you don't have satellite communications uh, in 1942. Uh, communications in that remote part of the world were really problematic. Uh, 
there were all, all kinds of problems with radio frequencies and all kinds of problems with interference and not having enough equipment to be able to carry out communications as well as they would. And, and, and this is for what he can be blamed. Uh, he made the decision that what he would do would be to wait. And when all of his searchers came back, he would consolidate all of their reports into one report that he would then issue to the commanders, uh, Fletcher being the, the carrier commander and Turner being the amphibious commander. Uh, so that meant that these guys, Fletcher and Turner in particular, would not get these reports until very late in the day, you know, around midnight, basically, when he was consolidating all these. And 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 I'm not sure why he did this. I'm, I'm, I've been speculating about this for a long time, but I think he did it simply because he knew that you only had so much bandwidth to work with. And if you sent out a dozen of these messages as they came in, it would simply overwhelm the radio nuts that they had. So consolidate them. Now, what Fletcher said and what Turner said was, hey, don't do that anymore. Uh, I, we need to know when these things are coming in as soon as possible. And where McCain really dropped the ball was not doing that right away. Uh, he said he would. He told Fletcher he would. I don't know whether he told Turner he would or not. But he told Fletcher he would, and he never did it. So Fletcher and Turner were, were not getting the information in as timely a fashion as they would have liked. Uh, another so, so, so there I've criticized McCain for that. Uh, on the other hand, no commander uh, in wartime gets all the information that they would like to have. You're always going to have to operate based on limited information, even in the 21st century. So uh, that was that was a criticism of him in the Battle of Savo Island. Now, he did better in the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Uh, actually, there his searchers did find the Japanese invasion force and located the carrier that was covering that invasion force, got that information to Fletcher, uh, whose forces went out and sank that, that small Japanese aircraft carrier. But he never found the, the big Japanese mobile fleet at that point. Uh, so in that sense, he, he was learning some lessons. And, you know, this is, this is all, nobody had done this before. Uh, you know, halfway around the world, you're carrying out an amphibious operation, the biggest one since what, the 19th century? Halfway around the world, nobody had done that before. So everybody was, to a certain extent, learning learning lessons out there. Aside from the more tactical and operational lessons that McCain learned while at Guadalcanal, is there anything else that he took away from his experiences during the operation? One thing coming out of Guadalcanal was that he earned a great deal of respect from the Marines. Uh, the Marines, according to John Lundstrom, unfairly uh, blamed Fletcher for pulling out too early and leaving them without any air cover. Uh, McCain did not pull out. McCain had to stay there. And, and for a, a significant period of time, the only air cover the Marines had in Guadalcanal came from McCain's forces. And they had a tremendous amount of respect for him as a result of that. And he had a tremendous amount of respect, respect for them as well. Yeah. Uh, he visited he visited them on Guadalcanal. He, you know, suffered Japanese bombardments with them. You know, there, there he was, you know, really understood what they were up against in Guadalcanal. And, and one other aspect of this, too, is that he understood the long-term strategic significance of the Solomons campaign, mm -hmm. that this ultimately was going to be attrition warfare. It was going to be long and bloody, but the United States had the resources and the Japanese did not. And eventually the Japanese, especially Japanese air power, would be worn down uh, by the Americans. He really understood that perhaps more than anybody else at that point out in the Pacific. It is quite impressive how much they were able to do with so little, with so and little kind of yeah. presaging what was going to happen as the kind of the, the technological and industrial machine ramped up as the war right. really and, got underway. Yeah. And, and that wasn't going to happen until 43 and into 44. Yeah. 
we talked a little bit about uh, McCain's relationship with Vandergriff and the Marines. Right. Um, and in many ways, even though he was criticized for his his uh, his command in the lead up to and during the Battle of Savo, and he's kind of bumped back to Washington, the Marines didn't really look at this as necessarily a, a negative because they would have somebody who really understood their problem in Washington advocating for them when right. he's sent back yeah. to the Bureau of Aeronautics. Yeah, um, good point. In, I was thinking also at the same time that his service in the Bureau of Aeronautics and as later as the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Air, they seem in your narrative almost as important, if not more so, than his actual combat command in the theater. <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, that was certainly the part of the book that I was most comfortable with. Uh, you know, people I've written about before, Moffat, you know, he was on the administrative side. He was the one who was the first chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics. He shaped the Bureau uh, into the super bureau, as they, as some people refer to it, it, as it, as it became during the interwar period. Uh, my biography of, of Jerome Hunsacker, I mean, this guy was involved with uh, uh, aerodynamics, was involved with uh, production and procurement and design of aircraft. Uh, he never saw combat. Uh, Glenn Curtis, you know, very early naval, av- considered to be a very early naval aviator. He didn't see combat. He was a civilian. Uh, so I was, I was really most comfortable with those parts of the, uh, of the narrative than I was with the operational side. Well, I think in particular, though, uh, your point about the integrated aeronautic program which maybe you can speak a little bit about is really poignant because again, as I said, I may have said already in the podcast, but we talked about a little bit off air, you know, so often the focus is on battles on blood and guts, you know, on campaigns and especially in modern 20th century warfare, the the tail makes up so much of the fighting force and is sometimes, you know, without them, there is no battle. There is no combat. There is no campaign. And that McCain service there really kind of drives home that point, I think. Yeah, one of the things I've done in, in a lot of my aviation histories has been to emphasize what happens on the ground, uh, that 90% of aviation is on the ground and 10% is in the air. And to a certain extent, that's reflected by what was going on in Washington during during World War II and what what, in, what involved uh, McCain, both in the Bureau of Aeronautics and, and the, and the uh, Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, one of the problems was, was procurement. Uh, initially, what McCain was most concerned with and as, as chief of the bureau was getting enough airplanes. Uh, the, the aeronautic program vastly expanded up to what, into 1943, you're talking about 22, 25,000 airplanes for the Navy. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just absolutely unprecedented as far as naval aviation was concerned. Uh, paled in comparison to what was going into the Army Air Forces. Uh, so he's very much concerned about how you're going to plan and, and conduct aircraft uh, uh, acquisition involved with aircraft design and how the Bureau is going to be handling that. Uh, another problem he had as Bureau Chief was, how do you get enough people into Washington to handle this? The, the Bureau expanded exponentially uh, in 1942 and 1943. Uh, he was he, he recognized very early on that women could play an important role here uh, and worked as hard as he could to bring waves uh, into the Bureau of Aeronautics. Uh, Bureau of Aeronautics had something like 2,000 civilians yeah. uh, 
that were working uh, by 1943. How do you integrate them in? How do they work with uh, with with naval officers and 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 other professionals? So there were all sorts of problems that uh, he had to face, and for the most part, uh, you know, did well as uh, as an administrator there. Uh, and I, I should add too that the reason, while some people were not happy with what he did. Uh, leading up to the Guadalcanal campaign and, and how he conducted uh, his operations during the Guadalcanal campaign, uh, they were not as unhappy with him as they were with, say, Gormley, uh, mm. who literally was fired from that command and Halsey put in, in his place. The problem was uh, that uh, King, Ernest King, who was the chief of naval operations and the commander-in-chief U.S. fleet, uh, was not happy with John Towers as, as chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics. Uh, they were like oil and water. They mm. simply did not get along. And King saw an opportunity to get Towers out of Washington and put him under Nimitz as Commander Aircraft Pacific. Mm. Uh, that then opened up the Bureau of Aeronautics position for someone that he had a lot of respect for, and that was McCain. Uh, so it wasn't, sim- it wasn't simply that people were dissatisfied with what McCain was doing out in the South Pacific, but this command shakeup that took place in Washington, largely engineered by Ernie King, uh, meant that, meant that uh, uh, McCain was going to come back to Washington in that position as, as chief of Buair. Yeah, it's interesting how war exacerbates conflict, not just between <laughs> global competitors, oh, yeah. but within, yeah. you know, within right. each service as well, and, and yeah. also between services. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and and then and then of course there was King, uh, who engineered the shakeup in the Bureau of Aeronautics that led to the establishment of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Air position. Uh, King, even though he had been uh, Chief of the Bureau of Aeronautics, succeeding Moffat, by the way, mm-hmm. when Moffat was was killed in 1933, uh, saw that as 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 a as an entity that was simply too large and unwieldy. It was involved in too much stuff, uh, especially planning and logistics. And he wanted it to go back to being a almost purely technical bureau, uh, which was very different than what Moffat wanted. Moffat wanted this idea of a super bureau that was involved with everything relating to aviation. So the idea was to separate the planning and logistical aspects that had been of naval aviation that had been in the Bureau of, of Aeronautics put them within this position and the responsibility of the deputy chief of naval operations and who's on the scene there, you know, as his friend McCain is on the scene and was more than willing to go along with this, supported in many ways, more than willing to go along with some of these changes uh, that took place uh, uh, in Washington at that time. And you also mentioned the integrated aeronautic program. Uh, The problem, the problem initially in the Bureau of Aeronautics that McCain faced was not, was, was not enough airplanes. By the time you got to late 1943 and 1944, the problem was too many airplanes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that really uh, struck me. Like, yeah. that, oh, there's a and, glut in the middle of the yeah. conflict. But it, it and 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 what that was doing was 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 clogging up the pipeline of getting the best airplanes and most high high performance airplanes, uh, especially out to the Pacific. Uh, what you had to do was set up a system where you're going to retire uh, older planes that became obsolete or worn out, get them out of the system to make room for some of the new airplanes coming into the system. And it was, it, McCain recognized what a problem this was. He was also very good in delegating responsibility and determining who was best to handle some of these problems. And he literally stole Arthur Radford, who was then a captain and later became an admiral and a, 
uh, task group commander, literally stole uh, uh, him from Towers Command and brought him back to Washington to handle this uh, problem that established the inter, uh, integrated aeronautic program that didn't entirely solve the problem in 1944 and 1945, but certainly mitigated most of the uh, the problems and rationalized production logistics and repair. And, you know, that's not sexy stuff, but it's really important that you get the, the, the best airplanes to the best people in the, in the Western Pacific. Yeah. Especially with how, not that war has ever been non-technologically associated, but especially with how modern warfare, how dependent it on, on the best and the newest and the fastest and the most combat effective. Uh, it is certainly an important, uh, important component. Um, yeah. Absolutely. How so? Let's talk a little bit about McCain's combat uh, experience and his combat command. Uh, what brought him back to the fleet, and maybe what do you see as kind of his maybe the seminal moments for him in that campaign that really kind of established his reputation as a forward-thinking carrier commander? Okay. Um, again, the the answer to that is King. More than anything else, uh, King was McCain's friend, and King was going to support McCain as much as possible. McCain wanted everybody wanted to have a carrier task force command, or at least at least a carrier task group command. Uh, and McCain certainly wanted this. He was there working with King in Washington. So, when the opportunity came up in the in the early spring of 1944, uh, as part of a rotation system that they were putting in place then of the senior commanders, senior task force commanders in the Pacific, uh, uh, McCain's name came up and King, of course, was gonna support them for this. This is the two platoon system that was really ingenious, well, almost accidental, but really ingenious in terms of how it worked. Uh, you had essentially two fleets that were set up, two administrative entities set up as fleets, fifth fleet uh, and third fleet. Uh, basically the personnel at the fleet level didn't change. But the officership, the leadership of the fleets did change, uh, which allowed uh, one group of people to be able to carry out operations while the other group of people would be back in Pearl Harbor or Washington doing planning and then rotate through again. So Raymond Spruance uh, uh, became commander of the 5th Fleet. Uh, this, of course, was taking place you know, in the spring of 44, became commander of the 5th Fleet and Mark Mitcher, uh, an early naval aviator, became commander of Task Force 58, which was essentially the carrier striking force. Well, if you're going to be involved with this rotation, what else are you going to do? Well, you set up the third fleet. Again, essentially the personnel out there in the Western Pacific didn't change, but the command leadership did. Uh, Bill Halsey became the uh, commander of the third fleet. Now you need somebody who can command Task Force, the new Task Force, now named 38. Uh, and that was McCain. Uh, and again, King is the key figure here who made that pot. King was the key figure who made that possible. Uh, it was going to support McCain for this. Do you think people like Towers were happy about it? No, no, <laughs> Towers, of course not. <laughs> Towers, Towers, Towers was there in Pearl Harbor doing important stuff, no question about it. But here, he were, here, here was a pioneer naval aviator who said, hey, it's my turn to take over a carrier command or at least a, a, a task group command. Uh, in the Pacific. So that, that's, that's how McCain uh, came into that position. And again, it was really important for him because he knew people and he knew how to get the best people under him. And uh, right away when he rec recognized that he was kind of going to be that task force commander, 
that he needed a good air operations officer, or I should just say operations officer. And that's when he turned to John Thatch or Jimmy Thatch. That confuses people too, because you would think with the nickname Jimmy that his first name would be James, but it's John. Uh, and, and Thatch was really an innovator as far as uh, fighter tactics were concerned, the famous Thatch Weave. Uh, he was a veteran of Midway. And uh, uh, McCain turned to him right away. What was happening was that this was, again, part of the success that the United States had was after some of these people gained experience uh, as, uh, as aviators, and especially fighter uh, aviators in the Pacific, they rotated back to training commands in the United States. They didn't leave them out there until they were killed. Uh, and Thatch was in a training command at that time in, in 1944, and that's when uh, McCain approached him and said, I'd really like to have you as my operations officer. And Thatch said, hey, I'm more than happy to work with you. Uh, so there, there was part of his, uh, uh, of some of the uh, uh, accomplishments that McCain had and recognizing people like Thatch and what they could do. And the two of them worked together just uh, hand in hand. Uh, uh, and as you mentioned previously, uh, McCain almost thought of, of Thatch as his son and Thatch thought of McCain as his dad. So they worked together very well. Now, now, everybody understood here that McCain needed some seasoning, uh, and they put him initially in a make-e-learn uh, position leading up to the Battle of the Philippine, Philippine Sea, uh, where he was with Spruance in the Fifth Fleet in Spruance's flagship, the Indianapolis, during the Battle of the Philippine Sea, where Thatch then went over to Mitcher's flagship, the Lexington, uh, during the Battle of the Philippine Sea. So even though he was still nominally and still nominally uh, uh, DCNO Air, he was now getting his first experience with carrier warfare in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, both, both he and Thatch uh, at this point. The Battle of the Philippine Sea, of course, takes place in June 1944, shortly before the appearance of what, at least in the popular mind, is probably the most enduring image of the Second World War in the Pacific. Uh, of course, here I'm talking about the kamikazes the suicide pilots who were part of the Japanese special attack units. McCain and his second-in-command, Thatch, were instrumental in developing tactics that would mitigate the kamikaze threat to the fleet. How did they do this, and how did their thinking about the kamikazes as a tactical problem evolve during the latter stages of the war? Well, the, the threat first appeared at the Battle of Leyte Gulf in October of '44. Uh, and McCain was involved in the Battle of Leyte Gulf as a task group commander in Task Force 38. Uh, in fact, he had the largest task group in, 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 in uh, Task Force 38 at that time. And he was really one of the, he was monitoring all the, the, the developments that took place and especially relating to the 7th Fleet uh, off the uh, coast of Samar, uh, monitoring this throughout, the, uh, throughout that period and turned the entire task group around and, and launched long-range strikes against the Japanese at that point on his own initiative, uh, which really was a remarkable achievement as far as he was concerned, doing that on his own. Uh, he also recognized, as a result of the Battle of Leyte Gulf, and then the, the probably two months of attrition air warfare off the Philippines, uh, what a threat the kamikazes presented. Uh, the carrier task force was really pretty capable of detecting large groups of attacking aircraft. Uh, on radar and then uh, through fighter through fighter director and fighter control, but individual airplanes approaching from from different angles was an entirely different uh, proposition entirely. Uh, so he and Thatch got together and said, "How are we going to defend the fleet against this new threat?" 
Uh, and one of their ideas was to set out essentially uh, picket uh, uh, destroyers uh, that would be able to pick up on radar uh, incoming uh, Japanese uh, attackers, kamikazes, as well as more conventional uh, aircraft coming in. Uh, and, then, and then in addition to that, uh, uh, instituting what he and Thatch referred to as the Big Blue Blanket, uh, the Big Blue Fleet was Task Force 38, basically, and the Big Blue Blanket was a way of having round-the-clock control of the air over the Japanese airfields in the Philippines, where a lot of these kamikazes were coming from. Uh, and it required uh, some changes in how you were going to carry out uh, air operations from the aircraft carriers to be able to provide that 24-hour uh, coverage of these of these airfields. So there, there was one way of doing this, and that was providing early detection through these, uh, they called them Tomcat destroyers, providing uh, radar picket duty, and then suppressing the threat itself on the airfields. And then carrying out what he referred to as moose trap exercises, where you had realistic exercises here to be able to meet that threat, uh, essentially drills to be able to meet that threat and, and make sure that everybody is on the same page uh, to carry that out. Uh, another change that was really based on command and control was instead of having four task groups in the task force, let's have three task groups with more carriers, uh, which then allowed uh, closer fighter direction and closer control uh, over the defenses of the fleet. So, so here you can see some of his innovation that was really, uh, really significant at that point in the war. This is into October, November, and even early December of 44. It seems like also one of his the, uh, pivotal moments in his command is the cruise through the South China Sea. Uh, yes. And kind of for the first time, that appears as when the carrier task group kind of emerges now as this completely new uh, element in the Navy. Is that a fair assessment? And how much was McCain kind of a driving force behind that usage of the of the carrier task groups? Well, he was certain, you know, he was in command of Task Force 38 during the, uh, the, the, uh, the cruise through the South China Sea. Halsey, of course, was third fleet commander, and the two of them worked together in terms of what they were going to do there. The big change that that, well, what they were doing, where they were, they were providing what they called strategic support for the American invasion, <clears throat> excuse me, of Luzon in the Philippines, the big island of Luzon in the Philippines. They didn't want to be tied to Luzon anymore. They didn't want to be tied to the Philippines. Let's go uh, after the Japanese uh, in a strategic sense where they had resources in Indochina in particular. And the big difference here is you weren't attacking an island. You weren't isolating an island and attacking it, uh, as it happened in various amphibious operations uh, throughout the war. Now you were attacking a continent. And that really marked, a, if I want to call it a sea change, if you will, in terms of using uh, the aircraft carrier task force uh, as a strategic weapon, uh, as a means of power projection. And uh, it really had a devastating effect on the Japanese in Indochina, uh, and also parts of China as well, and Formosa uh, during those operations in January of 1945. Now, I, I assume you're going to mention one of the the failures and one of the controversies, and that was the typhoon in December of 1944. <laughs> yes, actually, you've anticipated my next question. <laughs> okay. So Peter Shrivers, who's a Dutch military historian, wrote a fantastic book called The GI War Against Japan. And in it, he really goes to great lengths to emphasize just how formidable the environment was in the South Pacific. Uh, 
that, you know, often it was as deadly a foe, if not more so than the Japanese. And of course, the war at sea is no different. Famously, Task Force 38 was pummeled multiple times by typhoons. What were the factors that contributed to this disaster? What role did poor communications play and the concept of, which we talked about a little bit earlier, the concept, the Clausewitzian concept of the fog of war play in exacerbating McCain's decisions? And finally, what allowed him to retain command? He doesn't really seem to have suffered any blowback from this, uh, you know, from these incidents. Uh, the typhoon was in in the middle of December 1944, and uh, it, it it you know accidents in aviation don't occur just as a result of one cause. There are generally multiple causes that take place, and there are multiple factors that came together that uh, caused Task Force uh, 38 to blunder into this ty- typhoon. One was uh, poor weather reporting. There's no question about it. They didn't have as much information about where this typhoon was going. It was fast moving. It was very tightly. Uh, very tightly knit uh, uh, as far as uh, its uh, extent was concerned. So it was really hard to track this thing. And it was interesting in his, uh, in his after action report, I don't know it was after this typhoon or maybe the second typhoon in June of 45, where he said, you know, I didn't have enough information. <laughs> and I said, that's kind of ironic because you, you were blamed in 1940 or people were blaming you in 1942 for not providing enough information uh, to your superior officers. And now you're from the other side saying, I'm not getting enough information. Uh, but it really was a disaster. There's no question about it. Uh, almost 800 uh, sailors and, and, and officers died as a result of this. Three destroyers were sunk. Uh, carriers were so badly damaged that they were they had to be taken out of service at least temporarily. Uh, it was just a, a a real disaster that that came about because of some of the decision making that that McCain was responsible for. Uh, there were clearly errors of judgment that he made in terms of some of the course changes that he was recommending and took out. Uh, and 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 I made a point of saying one of the things that he lost sight of was what all uh, all people in combat have to be aware of, and that's this concept of situational awareness. Uh, Try to keep an eye on the big picture. And I think what was happening here was that to a certain extent, both he and Halsey were uh, blindfolded by their sense of, hey, we need to carry out refueling because next, the next day we've got to carry out these strikes uh, against the Philippines. And they were so focused on the mission that they tended to lose track of the bigger picture there that don't, 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 just, just don't disregard the weather. So it was really a, a remarkable, it was really a defeat, if you will, for uh, the Americans and for uh, Task Force 38. Now, politically, uh, the situation was that uh, King was, Nimitz was not happy about this at all. Uh, Nimitz, of course, being uh, commander in chief Pacific in Pearl Harbor. He was not, he was not as much a, a McCain fan as King was. Uh, King certainly was going to defend McCain as much as possible and defend Halsey. Everybody's going to defend Halsey because he's the hero of the Pacific War. You're not going to fire him as a result of this. So as a result of the investigation here, uh, uh, basically got a slap on the hand and saying, hey, we understand that it, it's commendable that you were focused on the mission. Don't lose sight of, of, of what all sailors have to be concerned about. And that's, and that's uh, the weather. Uh, so they got a pass. And of course, then went on to do very well in the South Pacific, excuse, excuse me, in the South China Sea, where they also faced a lot of bad weather. 
so there were le clearly lessons learned there that uh, should have been learned there by, by uh, both Halsey and McCain. Yeah, and also it seems that they really took it on board when they kind of threaded the needle during the final operations in the lead up to Olympic in 1945. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and there you really see the culmination. I, I tried to point this out in the book as much as possible. These, these last months of the war where uh, uh, the responsibility of Third Fleet and the responsibility of Task Force 38 was to prepare for Operation Olympic, which was the expected, anticipated, planned for invasion of the southern home island of Kyushu. Uh, the idea was to wear down the Japanese air power as much as possible in preparation for those landings. Uh, these were really strategic operations. This was power projection. And uh, the, carriers could, uh, the carriers could operate independently at this point. It was really remarkable how much mobility they had. Uh, generally, there'd be two days of strikes, then they'd take a day off for refueling, and then they could be 200 miles away uh, for the next strikes. And the Japanese were not able to respond to that in any way. Uh, and it was really strategic warfare by air, the aircraft carrier against Japan at this point uh, that, it, that was unprecedented. That had not been carried out before. And the size of, the size of this operation, uh, when, you, when you include the British uh, Pacific Fleet as essentially another task group, you're talking about, what, 19, aircraft, 19 large aircraft carriers here distributed among essentially four task groups here. Uh, what, uh, how many men, 100,000 or more men involved with this? How many aircraft, 1,000, 1,200 aircraft involved with this? It was just amazing how they were able to carry this out. And of course, there was another typhoon uh, in June of, of, of 45 uh, off Okinawa. Uh, this time, they were much better prepared for it, even though it again surprised uh, the, the fleet as well. And uh, one of the task groups under uh, uh, Jock Clark uh, task Group uh, 38.1 was badly hit by the typhoon. The rest of the fleet was pretty much undamaged. Uh, but at that point, people in, in Washington, King, you know, is King going to continue to support McCain under these circumstances? Halsey's going to get another pass, but McCain is not going to. And without King's support, it was clear that McCain was going to have to move on. But he was going to rotate out anyway. Uh, you're going to get the you're going to get the you're going to get the rotation to Fifth Fleet uh, leading up to leading up to the actual operations against Kyushu anyway. Uh, so he was going to rotate down anyway. But I, I interviewed John McCain III, the senator, about this. Uh, and he said, it was, he, was, he said his grandfather was really crushed by that, uh, essentially being fired from that command, even though it wasn't going to take, the change of command wasn't going to take place until September, when essentially the war was over. Yeah. It seemed like kind of almost a... Uh... A little bit of a kick in the teeth there at the end. Yeah, yeah, you could you could almost say, look, he's going to rotate out anyway. Uh, he's you know he's going to serve through August and into early September anyway, and then he's going to give up that uh, task force command and and rotate home, bring him back home, bring him back to San Diego home, bring him back to Washington, keep him in that command position. The atomic bomb, <laughs> the atomic bombs have already taken place. Japan's going to surrender, and then let him retire as a, a full admiral. But that wasn't the situation at that point, and and it wasn't clear. Obviously, when when this was this was remember June of nineteen forty five, it wasn't clear that Japan was going to surrender uh, anytime soon, and and they certainly hadn't had the atomic bombs until August. Yeah, and even in the aftermath of the atomic bombs, it still kind of seemed iffy as to what was going to happen. At least, for yeah, a couple I, of, at I, least for a couple I, of days. 
Yeah, um, I used to be very skeptical about the use of the atomic bomb until uh, I read Richard Frank's book on you know the the end of the Pacific War downfall, and then did some of my own research. It was not clear uh, in early and in, in even into the the first week of August after Hiroshima that the Japanese were going to surrender. And McCain understood that and said, "Hey, look, don't let down. Uh, we've got to keep fighting here until we actually understand that the Japanese have surrendered." One area that we haven't really touched upon yet, but that I'd like to broach before we discuss McCain's legacy and the final days of the war uh, was McCain's uh, public relations savvy. Uh, you know, certainly beginning with the First World War, uh, generals and admirals have to be, uh, you know public relations machines, if you will, as much as they are, uh, uh, you know, strategists and tacticians and, uh, you know, technologists. How do you view McCain's relationship with the press and his ability to really advocate for the Navy's cause? Yeah, he he was. I think this is really one of his strengths, too, and one of his accomplishments. He was more savvy about the press uh, than a lot of his contemporaries were. Uh, and recognize the need to sell the Navy and recognize the need to sell naval aviation uh, even before World War II and certainly during the war. Uh, and uh, he went out of his way. If you read his action reports, uh, there's almost always a big section in his action reports on public relations and how we do with the press. And uh, I don't really understand myself how the, the mechanics of this took place, but uh, he would he would set up on one of the ships in the task force this mobile this mobile seagoing press room uh, that would receive information from the fleet and would then dispatch communiques that would then get back to the West Coast and, and, and the East Coast as soon as possible to tell everybody what the Navy was doing. Uh, the problem was that to get, to get information to the New York newspapers from the Western Pacific was not easy, uh, whereas the Army could get stuff from Europe to New York you know, almost hourly. Yeah. And you couldn't, and you couldn't do that as far as the Western Pacific was concerned. So one of his real accomplishments was understanding how important public relations were. And uh, there's a story there for some historian to tell. Yeah, it would be very, very interesting, especially considering how, again, how important public relations are in modern warfare. Do oh, you sure. think? Do you think that his uh, this kind of that he recognized the need to sell the Navy? And say that the Navy only the Navy could have accomplished this to a war weary Congress and a potential yeah, Republican in 1945. Sure. Do you think yeah. that that resulted from the fact that he kind of had similar experience at the end of the First World War? Yeah, uh, uh, certainly he under, certainly he understood. Uh, well, a lot of people in the Navy understood the controversy that they had with the air with the Army Air Force, the Air Corps, the Army Air Forces, and ultimately air, the Air Force. Uh, in terms of who who is who is the, what is the real strategic entity as far as the United States is concerned? Traditionally, it had been the Navy. Uh, this was the first line of defense, and then you have the emergence of strategic air warfare in the 1930s, in particular. Uh, controversies over that. You had the Billy Mitchell controversy uh, uh, that uh, tangentially McCain was involved with. Uh, in various ways. He understood that uh, from the 1920s. And, and had he lived and had he gone back to Washington, perhaps another desk job, I don't think there's any question that he would have been in the forefront of the, uh, the Navy's efforts to try to reestablish itself as that first line of defense in, in, in 1947 through 1949 uh, had he lived. 
so he understood how important that was. And, and publicity and public relations were essential to that. Speaking of McCain's untimely death, um, he passed away just shortly after the official uh, surrender ceremony on the battleship Midori. Um, how do you view his legacy? Uh, you kind of answered, gave that a little bit, but do you think there's any lesson that both professional naval officers and maybe just the public at large who might not be aware of, you know, the silent service, <laughs> anything that they can take away from McCain's yeah. life and career? Yeah, well, he, you know, he he came back home to San Diego and he was he was home only one day uh, when he died of a heart attack at age 61. So I, you know, said, here's another casualty. Here's the tragedy where multiple tragedies of World War Two. Uh, here, here was a tragedy uh, where he gave his life basically for the service and gave his life for the nation. Uh, dying at age sixty-one used to seem really old to me, not anymore. Uh, so, yeah, uh, what does it all mean? Uh, I don't think there's any question here because of the very career that he had. I'm going to repeat pretty much what I've already said: the very career that he had in various aspects of, of naval aviation and the Navy in general uh, really illustrate how you can handle the, the introduction of some of these new technologies. Uh, these technologies can be disruptive. A lot of people have been working on disruptive technology now. Uh, and this was certainly disruptive to the Navy in various ways and how you handled that, how you handled it within the service uh, and how you handled it uh, external to the service, which was of course the way some of the pioneers wanted to do it. Let's just get us out of the service and let us do our own thing. Well, that wasn't going to be acceptable to Moffat and that wasn't acceptable to people like McCain or King or anybody else. So how you handle that politically, how you handle that new technology uh, and its, and its uh, introduction into a administrative bureaucratic apparatus like the Navy uh, is I think really what his legacy was. And, and, and because he had such a very career, both ashore uh, and at sea, uh, he really exemplified what uh, those changes were as far as the Navy was concerned. I also tried to make a point, I don't know whether it really came through very well, that these Johnny-come-latelys maybe had a bigger, had a better picture of what naval aviation meant than the naval aviators, the, the pioneer naval aviators. Uh, they were so focused on what they were doing that I think to a great extent they missed the big picture. Uh, they were blinkered in a, in a way that some of the Johnny come latelys like McCain and Halsey and uh, maybe to a certain extent uh, King and, and others. King was not a naval aviator. He was a naval aviation observer. Uh, could see the bigger picture here of what naval aviation meant. It's part of the Navy. It's integral to the Navy and how you and how you bring it into the Navy in a period of peacetime, you know, before the war and then during what was really a major disruption, World War Two is I think uh, uh, remarkable as far as McCain was concerned. And I think that really was his legacy more than anything else. So we've come now to the final two questions that we put to all of our guests. First, what project do you anticipate working on next if you have anything <laughs> yeah, in the I pipeline? Gonna, I knew you were gonna say that. Uh, Scott, I'm 72 years old. <laughs> I'm, re I'm retired. I retired from Auburn in 14. Uh, now, I didn't really retire. Actually, in 1415, I taught at the Naval Academy, uh, which was a fantastic experience, uh, 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 really an honor to be able to, to be there uh, teaching the, the midshipmen there. And, and Annapolis is just a wonderful place. Uh, but I had I worked pretty hard in retirement. I kept telling my uh, 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 the, the chair of the department, who was a Navy guy, a Navy captain, I said, you guys are working me too hard here. He said, well, why, why, why do you think you're here? I said, I'm retired. <laughs> then I came back to Auburn and I, you know, and I taught basically half time for two years. So 
uh, I've really only retired since I wound up finishing up uh, last fall with the, the McCain book. So I don't know. I've been kind of taking a break from things and uh, traveling to, to visit my kids and grandkids, which has really been nice. Uh, but you get itchy about doing some things. And uh, one of the things that has intrigued me uh, is this whole public relations thing. Uh, I really think there's a story there, probably a book there about uh, World War II in the Pacific and public relations that could be done. It wouldn't be easy, and it's, require, it's going to require archival work and uh, probably a month in Washington at the National Archives to do it. Uh, and then the other thing I, that intrigued me about it is, all right, this is carrier aviation that I've dealt with. What about all the other naval aviation in the Pacific during World War II? What about the fleet air wings, you know, flying from advanced bases and, and, and doing scouting, reconnaissance, weather stuff, and also in the strike role? I think there maybe is another story there. So I'm, I'm kind of working my way back into some of this stuff. Uh, I'm not really washed up yet. Uh, and my wife especially says, hey, you need to do some things <laughs> other than just <laughs> hang around the house, reading books and watching TV. Well, I think after a very distinguished career, you know, a little time off is, is definitely well earned. Yeah. And I tell some of my, my colleagues, I say, look, does it really make any difference whether you have nine books or 10 books? And yeah. they go, yeah, I guess it really doesn't make much difference. So our final question is, Sure. is there anything that you're currently reading, watching or listening to that our audience might want to check out? Yeah, and I have just recently read Craig, Craig Simon's book, World War II uh, at Sea, and very impressed by it. And I wish I had re- I wish it had been available before I wrote uh, about McCain. Uh, it's really neat how in this book he showed how integrated the European theater and the uh, Pacific theater were. And you, you tend to be siloed on that. You know, let's, let's deal with Europe separately. Let's deal with Pacific separately. And he integrates those about as well as anything uh, I've read. And the guy really writes well. Wish I could write as well as he does. So I read that recently. Uh, there are other books out there I'm, you know, I'm going to have to kind of pick up if I'm going to get serious about returning to the Pacific in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I really haven't worked up a bibliography on that yet. So I'm kind of in between things right now. And traveling more and visiting my kids and grandkids more. Great. Well, Bill, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, Scott, I appreciate it too. Uh, I'm glad you liked the book and I hope that uh, some people out there will take the, the opportunity to, to read it and you know let me know what they think about it too. Definitely. And to all of our listeners out there, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz. Thank you for listening. <laughs>